Maybe just something uh, to, I felt like last night I said something uh, later during the night. I was thinking, uh, certainly my failures to those who have gone with me in many, many years and different trips, um, my failure with them is uh, evident to them, but I, I should mention what a blessing those who have gone with me and, and spent days, whole days where they were listening in Spanish completely and and their wisdom at the end of the day and during those times. And, and we have had to deal with, for instance, in, in Chile, just some horrendously difficult problems and excommunication situations. And, and uh, even, oh, and their, their being there with me has been such a, a help. Because sometimes I, I just not only didn't know the answer, I just didn't know if, we should even go forward at all, should this just come to an end. And I think there have been times when there have been others maybe here who thought, boy, maybe you just need to scrap this. This has been, and, and those who have gone with me have been encouraging and, and what God has been doing. And, and I'm really uh, very thankful for certainly uh, all the different ones, Jerry Slate going recently, and of course, as I lovingly call Dave Hendricks CKX, because if you look at Hendricks, it's not... You know, it doesn't end with just a C or, or Hendrix with a K or Hendrix with an X. It's C-K-X, you know. He's uh, just uh, complete, you know. And he really has, uh, you know, just perseverance to be there with his wisdom. In fact, uh, just a word we, we found in the church there, and it's certainly related to the self-supporting aspect of, of the church there in in Santiago, but there was a... Time where, as we looked at their finances, uh, it was like less than two hundred dollars a month, and we knew what the income of someone was that was there, and and you know that's it was less than ten percent of that one person's income. I mean, something was terribly, and so uh, you know, beforehand, I, I we talked to Dave and said, could you bring a message? I'm not very good at this, and uh, could you bring a message uh, on just giving as a church and and. Uh, and Dave brought this wonderful message that was translated and, and uh, powerful, really. Uh, and so we prayed and, and the income of the church increased from less than $200 a month to 2000 a month. I thought we need to put him on a circuit going around. It. I mean, it was, uh, it really was. I mean, it was like, uh, that was... Uh, and again, my lack of exhorting them in that area uh, was just filled in with the gifts of others who, who came alongside. And, and certainly uh, 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 Don Donnell and, and others who, Don Lindblad going to Cuba and, and uh, those who filled in in different places, uh, certainly we're just very thankful. And I'm sure all of us voice uh, a thanks to Fred and, and Joy and, and uh, the church here and uh, the food and uh, all these different things. It's uh, a joy to be together just in these days. And I'm thankful for uh, to the Lord for RBMS, the committee here and, and the church here. And um, this morning to look at the three self movement. Um, kind of a strange name, really, isn't it? Uh, but I think as we look back over uh, this great 
century of missions, what was called the 1800 to about 1914, when really there were just uh, missionaries poured out of the United States and and uh, Great Britain and the Netherlands and and other Christian countries uh, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It really was a, an amazing century. And there were millions of people that came to Christ through those tremendous endeavors. Uh, uh, but at the same time, it was very much connected with nation building and colonialism. And it was connected with trade and commerce. And, and there were a lot of things that were set really for a pattern of paternalism and uh, that, that continue right into our 21st century. And uh, a picture that still is very vivid in my mind about, oh, I guess it must be almost 10 years ago or so. In uh, Cuba, we had a, a conference, uh, probably had 120 pastors. It was really uh, one of the things we tried to do is kind of keep things in a low key so that we wouldn't have all these large groups because we didn't want to draw attention to it. But they would arrive and come and, and we'd have these three days of teaching and and you have a tin roof up there and, and uh, the heat, and you're just, uh, whew, just really is a long day. And uh, uh, at the end, we were to travel and we needed to leave. But here was this long line of about 120 of these uh, students and pastors. And what are they, why are they all lined up? And I went up there, and there was this uh, briefcase that was open, all full of banded bills. I mean, you know, like you see in the. Narcotraficantes, you know, type of thing, you know, it's, uh, and uh, what is, and each one of them was being paid a monthly salary from the U.S. church, good, good, wonderful Christians, brothers of ours that we love, and, and, but they didn't have a clue to what that looked like to the Cubans, and what that set up, in a sense there, to say the least, I was horrified, the implications of of Christian workers in a communist country being paid from the U.S. Um, it was detrimental to the advancement of the kingdom. It looked like such a great idea. I mean, you know, 15 bucks a, a month, is you know, that's what they, they live on. So, hey, here it is, and here it is, and another one's checked off, and next guy, and next guy. And, you know, it looks like such a great idea. But I believe these dear... American Christians with good motives and love for the Cuban people had no clue to the potential damage they were really creating. So, uh, what I want to do this morning, and, and uh, hopefully it's not tedious to you, uh, is really begin with asking the question, what is missions all about? Why are we in these foreign countries? And uh, uh, let me give you what... Again, I guess you may say that uh, uh, Johann Hermann Bavink is one of my patron saints, uh, uh, it would seem. Uh, but let me give you a, a definition. He had, I think, some four different definitions that I found uh, that he gave of missions. He, after spending many uh, years in missions, he, he took the chair of missiology in the Netherlands there and... and uh, uh, in his the concept and reality of mission, he says, mission is that activity of the church throughout the whole world, and I believe you have that uh, definition there in your outline, which in deepest 
essence is an activity of Christ himself through which the church calls nations to the, in their diversity to faith in and obedience to Jesus Christ. Demonstrates to them by the signs of its service and ministry how the salvation of Christ encompasses all of life and at the same time teaches them to look forward to the perfection of the kingdom in which God will be all and in all. And I believe this is, this is making disciples of all nations and teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. It is a full-orbed work to be done. So, in your outline there, uh, what I would see as our task uh, is, is how do the three self-principles fit into this mission of the church? And so, I would like to start with... Uh, what contributes to the forming of an indigenous church? And uh, certainly, uh, uh, the 19th century, almost that universal practice was uh, to pay mission, mission workers. And so you had that as the work grew, then the number of those paid workers grew. And uh, as the outposts, Expanded, then you had more paid workers as it kept expanding. And uh, uh, whether they were converts to do evangelism, teach in schools, uh, work in hospitals as book salesmen, um, it, it all seemed to be uh, good as long as the money kept coming to pay for everything. And yet, I think there was something almost of a suspicion from the very start. I mean, how is it these foreign funds are coming in and Exactly what is taking place here. And then, then uh, why are these foreigners paying them, you know? And then you have uh, the moment when the money slows down or the money stops. And uh, then there's a crisis for everyone. So, uh, really, at the start of the, I think, really... Uh, in the 19th, the, towards the end of the 19th century, in the start of the 20th century, you have Roland Allen raising his voice as an Anglican missionary. And, and uh, uh, if you're unfamiliar with him, uh, certainly uh, I, I would recommend you to read through those uh, books. He was an uh, English missionary who worked in China uh, with the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. And then before him was uh, uh, Rufus... Uh, Allen and Henry Venn and and uh, and really uh, a number of others. Uh, I list these personalities there in the outline. I think uh, it would be great to uh, have a uh, uh, biographical sketches of some of these men and the work that they were involved with. I think uh, we have an uh, important element. I think of communicating what has taken place and gone before us in in strategy and planning. Uh, there really is a great deal of history. Uh, that's gone on. Uh, I think, uh, uh, for instance, when we think of the world of Islam, you know, really the Christian church hardly had the concept of uh, taking the gospel to the Arab world in particular. For instance, uh, it wasn't until Raimundo Lulio, as we call him in Spanish, Ramon Yul, uh, there in Spain, uh, spoken of uh, from the island of Mallorca. He's really the father of the Catalan language. He came up with the novel idea that instead of killing murdering uh, and fighting with the Saracens, fighting with the, the, the Muslims uh, 
that uh, we should actually try to learn the Arabic language and uh, try to communicate the love of Christ to them. It was a novel idea in the uh, 13th century. Um, he's really like the father of, of missions. Uh, Samuel Swamer has kind of a halo biography. Uh, no, not kind of. It is a halo biography of, uh, of uh, Raymond Lowell. But I recommend some of these biographies are what can fire our hearts and lives up in missions. But uh, let me give you just this word from uh, these early writers about the three uh, self principles. In 1851, Henry Venn wrote a memorandum where he put forth the goal of indigenous churches as the settlement of a native church under native pastors upon a self-supporting, self-governing, and self-extending system. Then saw in Matthew 28:19 the formation and discipling of national churches who would be self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. And then you have Venn uh, and, and Anderson both setting these things forth. Again, that whole terminology of an indigenous church, something that would be uh, grown in that, that soil, just as we would have uh, you know, the, the, the great uh, redwoods there in Yosemite and Mariposa Grove, they're, they're native to that soil. Or our sorrel cactus, uh, cacti, there in the great Sonoran Desert of the Southwest, uh, these, these men were using that term indigenous churches to seek to imitate. Really, almost all of them went to the methods of the Apostle Paul. And that was what they went to for the regulatory principle of their methodology. And so, that pattern. Again, in your outline, just to look very quickly, those... Uh, some of the patterns that were there, the missionary travels. Um, uh, Paul didn't remain a, a permanent pastor in, in any of these places. He's traveled. Uh, I think some of you have seen how that's almost like a travel log when you read some of those passages of, of the Apostle Paul. He sails for there and then he arrives there, visits the church and sets sail for another place and then goes down a little ways to the south and there's another church and, and then... Uh, as you go through from one place to the next, uh, Luke writes through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the churches. Uh, I've always thought it's a little strange. Sometimes we try to define what a missionary is so tightly that when we get done, was Paul a missionary? He didn't do it exactly like this. And I, I think, you know, maybe we need to stop that kind of definition so tightly that we want to form and, and define how it must be. Because if we've excluded the Apostle Paul as a missionary, something is wrong. <laughs> now, there was also, uh, I think, what I would believe are really key centers of witness. Uh, Roland Allen points out that St. Paul's theory of evangelizing in a province was not to preach to every place in it himself, but to establish centers in two or three important places from which the knowledge might spread the country around. He intended his congregation to become at once a center of light. And then just note Acts 19, verses 8 through 10, how Paul uh, you know, went all, uh, 
all out to train and then that word spread in that whole area. Then the appointment of elders, we've talked about that. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The churches were self-governing from a very early time and we've already talked about some of uh, the team ministry of Paul working together with a number of others and uh, uh, he... Uh, you know, very, very wonderful way of, uh, uh, I think, he added gifts to the ministry, but at the same time it, it created opportunity for training with these others. So as a team, they were working together, adding in the gifts of someone who goes along and, and preaches and teaches and helps. And, and at the same time, there was training that was taking place. The culture, cultural adaptations... Uh, I believe we'll have a beautiful time uh, seeking to understand how we can uh, uh, work with cultures and, and uh, adapt to those without compromising the gospel. I still remember reading uh, once uh, from this passage of Scripture where someone says somewhere how he becomes as a Jew to, to the Jews to win the Jews and, uh, and later says... Uh, you know, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And uh, one of the men that was there, he said, was that written by a liberal? Who, who wrote that? And it was kind of like, you know, I mean, uh, there is a necessity for us never to compromise the Gospel, but at the same time, to bend, flex, adapt, accommodate, to identify with the people to whom we're taking the Gospel. And Paul never compromised the Gospel, but he did seek to live in the setting of the people. And it, at times, I believe, as a Pharisee with his background, it was not easy for him to do those things. So that by all means, possible means, I might save some are not the words written by some liberal somewhere. It was the Apostle Paul. And uh, certainly, uh, just again, let me give a, a quick summary of those three principles. Self-supporting, this means that the native church supports itself with the tithes and offerings of its own members rather than others carrying their financial obligations. They know and minister to their own social needs with their own tithes and offerings. And I think that has to do with the salary of their pastor and the care of, of uh, the ministry that they have. Now, self-governing. And I think we'll deal a little more with this later, but it means that the national church can and does make its own plans for the Word of God and the elders with the Word of God and the elders that have been appointed. And there will be you know, uh, that relationship. I, I believe it shouldn't mean that uh, therefore they're independent of, of uh, maybe the, the missionary who's been there, but they are those who are now as a church and, and uh, working with and dealing with the congregation and uh, their self-governing. And then... Uh, Self-propagating, 
This church now carries out the great commission in evangelism and missions. They are seeking to reproduce themselves by the planning of churches through their own members and plans. And, and that's been a real joy to us, especially the church in Santiago, uh, Chile. They not only they're, they're starting three different congregations and uh, uh, they're moving forward with these things. Uh, and I think uh, it's important for us to see that these principles allow us and the world to see that it is Christ who plants His church in native soil and it takes root in that land. I often uh, emphasize that it's not a Christ that comes from North America nor from Rome. Uh, it's a Christ, the Lord Jesus, who comes from heaven and he plants the seed here in this soil, in this land. And it produces fruit in this land because he is the planter. Um, the head of the native church is not a foreign Christ from the missionary's land. But the Lord of the whole earth who came from heaven to seek and to save them in their own culture. Those all things. Now... Uh, Evaluating the three self movement. Um, let me. Uh, uh, certainly, there's been incredible growth. Um, there's been a uh, what we would say, uh, you know, there's been this this change uh, from the the can we use the term even the global north now the global south it would seem has had. This tremendous amount of growth, and much of that growth has used these three self principles. And whether we're speaking of the charismatic and Pentecostal churches, they have used these principles in an unusual way. And just because they've used them, and I don't agree with much of what they are and what they preach and teach, doesn't mean that therefore these principles aren't biblical. Sometimes if something identifies with those we disagree with, then suddenly that's trashed. At the same time, there's always the danger to apply any method legalistically. In every circumstance, every field, and every people in the same way. Let me give to you a criticism by the Anglican John Stott, of uh, really of Roland Allen, who was an Anglican who wrote with the three self-principles and his emphasis with that. Very quickly, Stott's um, helpful criticisms. I believe it's good to hear these criticisms of the three self-principles. First, Stott says, it is not radical enough in relation to the church's identity. The three self-principles, the three principles were self-supporting, self-governing, self-extending, but the authentic selfhood, Stott says, of a church goes beyond finance, administration, and evangelism to the totality of its cultural self-expression, including its theology, worship, and lifestyle. Secondly, it's not imaginative enough in relation to missionaries. Some have said that once the national church was established, missionaries should leave. But no. Once the church has established its own selfhood, foreign missionaries will be welcome as guests to work under national leadership to offer specialist skills and to demonstrate the international nature 
of the church. And then Stott says, thirdly, Roland Allen's vision is not flexible enough in relation to its expectations. The selfhood of churches is attainable at different rates in different circumstances. Probably Allen did not sufficiently recognize the unique position of Paul's Jewish and God-fearing converts who already had a strong Old Testament background in doctrine and ethics. And uh, we should realize that those first Christian missionaries found Jewish proselytes and God-fearers everywhere. And then Stott finally has this word. The overwhelming success of the mission of the Apostle Paul, who in the space of ten years had established centers of Christian faith throughout almost the whole of the contemporary world, depended partly on the fact that everywhere he was able to build on ground prepared by the Jewish mission. It is doubtful. After only a few months, Paul could have appointed elders in a congregation composed entirely of ex-pagans and ex-idolaters. In such cases, there would almost certainly have been a period of transition from mission to church while elders were being taught and trained. Now, uh, after having, say, having said all this and listened to Stott's criticism, I believe these principles are very biblical and needful. They give us a pattern to work with as principles in missions. My own concerns have been with making of these principles methods into iron, rigid mold in which they're taken and as I would see it, sometimes someone can get a hold of something and then press down this iron mold on the living body that's alive on Christ's bride and it bleeds everywhere because they've got this mold and they push it down. It's got to happen this way and it's got to happen in this time frame. And There's always that danger that we get a hold of something then legalistically we've got it figured out and this is the way it's got to work right now. And so I think we need to take some of these criticisms and realize that we're dealing with the bride that Jesus loves. And we need just always have that grace of God working in these different circumstances. It might take ten years in one place. And maybe, I don't know how it would only take a month or two. But uh, that there is that flexibility that is needed in working with these principles. But let me give you just very quickly... Uh, hopefully in a profitable way, that there is a vital power of the Gospel in these principles. Uh, first, self-supporting. Look with me for a few moments with this. We should acknowledge that almost from the birth of the church, finances surfaced as a problem in the churches. Paul treats such problems with great carefulness. He dedicates a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians. To this issue. He insists clearly that he had the right to remuneration from those to whom he proclaimed the gospel. Yet, in 1 Corinthians 9.14, as he says, 
the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And yet, as a missionary to the lost, he did not want to be accused of proclaiming the gospel and preaching Christ because he was well paid. Paul was determined. With his own words, he said that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. I preach the gospel of God's free grace without charge. And uh, I believe there's an obligation on our part in relation to those to whom we're taking the gospel. At the same time, uh, we have an obligation, I believe, to, to uh, have that imitation of the Apostle Paul, not as a copycat of Paul in the sense of his uh, uh, gestures or his mannerisms or his personality, or, but rather as he would uh, be related to those to whom he was taking the gospel. And uh, I think there's something much deeper here than just having to do with the salary of the pastor. I believe the colonial system of missions really in the 19th century in employing thousands of new converts as paid preachers started the church on a wrong direction, a wrong pathway. Let me give you from John L. Nevius, who was a missionary to China at one point, at least 28 years. I think a total working that he had was about 40 years as a missionary. And he writes, We deprive ourselves of one of the most effective means of separating the shaft from the wheat. And we have heard, you know, uh, certainly the, the accusation that uh, uh, these preachers have eaten the missionaries' rice and that is the, they're only doing this work in the church and for the church because they're well paid. And there's that danger that's there. What can appear really just as a financial arrangement, I believe, has really great importance in the whole of the church and in the kingdom. Let me refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I had not really seen this with clarity myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, I believe, deals there with something that is much neglected. There are clear statements regarding new converts in the pagan city of Corinth. Paul says, nevertheless, verse 17, he says this three times. And in the original, it's almost like he's, he's uh, saying it again the same way, saying it again the same way, and saying it again. Verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24. Three times he says it over and over and over. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life the Lord assigned to him, and to which God has called him. That is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now, uh, let me say that when missionaries hire the new converts by the dozens to do work that later the church is unable to financially continue, these converts then are left out of the market financially. 
maybe these are the, the guys that should say, hey, this is a sharp guy, this is another one, another one. We pull them out, pay them what they're getting now or a little more, but then as two or three or four years pass, and then they try to go back into that market when the mission money is withdrawn, they're out of the market. They've not advanced. And we can kind of refer to that later, but the church is robbed of its financial support for years to come. Nevius devotes ten pages on how to deal with new converts. Listen to these. It's almost like he's repeating this again and again. The command of 1 Corinthians 7.20. Let each man abide in that calling wherein he was called. Nevius says is repeated in a different form in verse 24. And in the same chapter, brethren, let each man wherein he was called therein abide with God. And then he says this apostolic injunction, we are further told, was ordained for all the churches. It teaches most emphatically that Christianity should not disturb the social relations of its adherents, but requires them to be content with their lot and to illustrate the gospel in the spheres of life in which they are called. How many of us have given these passages of Scripture that weighty authority which they deserve? How many of us have realized that in taking untried Christians out of the positions in which God has called them and making evangelists of them, we may be literally, though unconsciously, opposing a divine purpose? The second, self. Self-governing. Following Ben Anderson and Nevius and Roland Allen, they advocated this indigenous leadership. Self-government. He believed that in his day, missions had stifled the growth of the church by maintaining control and administration, education, finance, outreach, what we call paternalism. Alan called it a failure to have faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are familiar with what took place in, in China. I'm sure maybe all of us uh, something of how uh, without the missionary presence, the, the Marxist uh, thought, you know, uh, Karl Marx is the, that really religion is the opium of the people, get rid of these missionaries and hey, it's all going to just disappear. And, of course, you had something of that uh, element that they were very wise. And they grabbed hold of this uh, three-self movement and they changed the name to the PSPM and it became the three-self-patriotic movement. And they sought to uh, demand the churches to adhere to uh, certain regulations and rules and some wouldn't go along with this. But nevertheless, as the government sought control, they took counsel together against the Lord's anointed and He will laugh in the heavens. It's amazing how God uh, arranges things. Uh, and of course, the, the story is such amazing as, as the missionaries left. And then uh, it was interesting that the largest intervarsity group in the world was there in China. And they left them two years there. And they trained. They trained people. Of course, we know that there's something like what about 70 million, and then 70 million of the registered churches, and then another 40 or 50 million 
somewhere in that area. I mean, somehow or another, those are saying, at least some are saying that there are more people who attend church on a Sunday in China now than what attend in the United States of America. God is at work. Uh, somehow or another, the Holy Spirit has entrusted these people to direct their own affairs and work at these things. Um, self-governing. There is a caution here. In working out this principle of self-government, we must not remove the fellowship, ministry, and counsel of missionaries and other church planters. Paul and his apostolic band returned again and again, strengthening these churches. So we need to have balance and wisdom in putting into practice this principle. A huge amount of Paul's missionary work was his travel to existing churches for their strengthening and encouragement. Self-extending. And I believe this may be one of the most important principles of these three. Uh, Really, these principles are all tied together. There's an organic whole to them. How does the body of Christ extend itself? Roland Allen observed that St. Paul did not go about as a missionary preacher merely to convert individuals. He went to establish churches from which the light might radiate throughout the whole country round. He points out this with, let me give you his words. One other effect of St. Paul's training is very clear. His converts became missionaries. The Christians of the four provinces were certainly zealous in propagating the faith and apparently needed no exhortation on the subject. This was not really surprising. Christians receive the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus is a missionary spirit. The Spirit of Him who came into the world to bring back lost souls to the Father. I believe. I believe. It is clear that part of the true character of the church is that of self-propagating. I think the first uh, verse of Scripture I was given to teach at a Christian university that I was in in 1964 was uh, Acts 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the Word wherever they went. It wasn't the paid evangelist. It wasn't even the apostles. It was the hoi polloi. The refugees. Certainly we have said already something about missionary teams and discipleship. And uh, uh, I'm thankful as I began for those who, who would go with others. And, uh, and there's a, a working together in that Support. There's sometimes long days and uh, and helping and working with each other. Uh, uh, and certainly Paul's uh, Paul's uh, working as a team, I think, has importance. And uh, and we are, I believe, to imitate these these uh, methods and what has been given to us by examining. The passages we see his behavior of spreading the gospel with discipleship. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And I think he's saying, follow my example in, 
And yes, spreading the gospel, using every opportunity. So I ask, do we wonder, what kind of church did Paul seek to plant? He says that he, that these who had welcomed the message with the Holy Spirit's joy, 1 Thessalonians, became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And there's this clear answer. There was no fortress mentality, but rather in the world. And certainly we want to emphasize not of the world, but if we're not in the world, we're not going to take the gospel to them. Paul's views, I think, are given to us in a beautiful way, not only in the book of Acts, but also in his letters. Um, I really think, if you read through the book of Acts, there's a presupposition that the church of Jesus Christ is spreading the message. I mean, it's like, if you don't have that as a presupposition of what's going on, I don't think you can understand the book of Acts. It's not like, here's a text and there's a text. That's what was happening. It's an expansion. Nevius and Allen and Bobbing, uh, Ben, Anderson, all of them ask this question. Uh, why aren't our churches self-propagating with every member involved in working out their own salvation with fear and trembling as they hold out the word of life? Why are people so dependent on a mission to govern and finance the church and to spread the faith. And uh, let me give you a quote from Bruce Hunt. I don't know if any of you had the privilege of hearing Bruce Hunt. He was at Grace Baptist Church in the early 70s. And uh, he wrote the introduction to uh, the a new edition of uh, John L. Nevius' uh, uh, The Planting and Development of, of uh, Indigenous Churches. And in that introduction, uh, Bruce Hunt, you know, was a missionary with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and, and uh, served as a missionary uh, in Korea and went through, um, I think, uh, anyway, some very difficult times there. He says of John Nevius, preach the expansion and wide evangelization without sacrificing either intensive work or indoctrination. He preached self-support without sacrificing the fundamental principle of dependence on God. He preached self-government while providing for the establishment of that government in such a way as to make it scripturally sound. He preached the necessity of using each Christian whatever his station in life while also providing for and insisting on a fully trained and equipped leadership. Now, how can this be accomplished? I think that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, they're in that place where God has called them. They're going to be light in that place. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. And they point out how there's that danger of grabbing up these different ones out of those places where God has 
place them. Um, again, I think if you if you do that very thing of uh, uh, grabbing five or six in this new congregation out of their primary places of influence and work, you not only rob the church of its self-propagating places of light, but for years to come, it is robbed of its financial base. So we have two ill effects when this takes place. One, the church loses its place to shine the light of the gospel in the workplaces. Two, it also loses the income that should be indigenous to the local church. The entire practice hinders the autonomous government of the church because key leadership, the key leadership are employees, not even of the local church, the local body of believers, but of the foreign mission society. And so I really believe we need to be very sensitive to this manipulation of God's people. And it's very easy for others even to look upon this as being suddenly we've created mercenaries of an enemy government in certain circumstances. And it can be a very dangerous thing that suddenly they say they drank the Kool-Aid and they eat the rice. Therefore, they're preaching, witnessing, doing all these missionary things. Um, let me give you one more quote from John Elnevius. He says, Some will say that depending largely upon the voluntary and unpaid labor of native Christians for the propagation of the gospel is presupposing a larger amount of zeal and devotion on their part than is found among Christians at home. If this is true, so much the worse for Christians at home. If there is not that zeal and effort in the church at home, it is much to be deplored. Perhaps that one of it is due in great measure to a growing habit of leaving work for Christ to be done by those who are paid for it. Where such an idea prevails, whether at home or on mission ground, it tends to paralyze the power of the church for good. Again, balance and wisdom is needed in all of this. I guess I have another patron saint here, John Nevius. You know, let me give you one more quick quote here, a word. Uh, Nevius says, I fully recognize the fact that the employment and pay of native laborers is, under suitable circumstances, legitimate and desirable, as much so as the employment and pay of foreigners. Here, however, the important question, questions arise. Who shall be employed? And when and how shall they be employed? So, what we're saying in conclusion is that God has designed the church so there's an inner reaction or interaction in the establishment of the indigenous, self-supporting, self-governing, and self-propagating, self-extending church. It's not that we have now this iron mold that we can push down on the living body of Christ and make it bleed or manipulate people. 
Let me go to the third point quickly here. The work of the Holy Spirit in planting the indigenous church. Um, Certainly these uh, reformed missionaries that we've been mentioning, mentioning, they were the ones who really pioneered these three self-principles. And so I think uh, they should have a great deal of, uh, of impact upon us and importance. The danger, again, is that we can depend on our theology, our Pauline methods, and, uh, and somehow or another rely upon ourselves. Nevius, if we are cherishing a feeling of self-dependence in any form, God will probably humble us before He will use us. I think this self-dependence can deceive us even as we champion our Reformed theology. What do we know of what Luke records? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They appointed those elders because the Holy Spirit made them overseers of the flock. They had that Calvinistic impact of seeing without the Holy Spirit we can do nothing. When the Holy Spirit is in power, that is what makes all the difference. The voice of the Lord. I believe that's something we can easily neglect. You know, it was, uh, uh, isn't John Calvin really the theologian of the Holy Spirit? Or do we speak of John Owen as being the theologian of the Holy Spirit? Have we lost that emphasis? I believe that we stunt the growth of churches by maintaining control of their administration, control of their finances, control of things. Paternalism stunts the growth of churches because it fails to trust the Holy Spirit in new believers to give them that sound doctrine and biblical practice, that that work of the Spirit of God. Um, if, If we don't trust the Holy Spirit to do that work, they will learn not to trust the Holy Spirit work in themselves and in their work. It's our, our beloved Professor Murray who has said, this is the heir of the Holy Spirit. I must bring this indictment against the church that we have dishonored the Holy Spirit by failing to lay hold of the plenitude of grace and resource which He imparts. Isn't this a decisive moment for us as, as an assembly here, as Reformed Baptists? We, we need that great work of missions to go forward. And it's going to be as the Holy Spirit does that work in us and, and in those to whom we are taking the Gospel. Without that voice of the Lord, there won't be a spontaneous expansion. In that book, The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church, Roland Allen sees uh, three things that were what the Holy Spirit used or the expansion of the church. One was the irresistible attraction of the communal life. 
By this shall all men know that you're my disciples indeed if you love one another. Secondly, the spontaneous evangelistic activity of the local congregation. And then third, the planting of more of these congregations in new places. And uh, how do we implement these, these, uh, these principles? How can the local leadership be trusted? I believe we, we must disciple them and trust the Holy Spirit work in them. Um, and I think we all here long, long to see indigenous churches that take root in their own soils. And we need to have right principles and right theology. But we must not manipulate, manhandle those in other lands. We mustn't use our money, power, education to control others. Um, It does require us to be bleeding as we learn other cultures and languages and people and to be humbled. Um, Without the Holy Spirit, everything will get twisted. Even if we have it all right and straight and put together. It'll come to nothing. I just believe that uh, as we, as Reformed Baptists, uh, uh, the future holds what only the Lord Jesus knows. And in His power, I believe it is inevitably greater than we can imagine. He is yet to do a work in the earth that is far beyond what any of us here can even imagine what He's going to do. But the amazing thing is He enjoys using us in confusing circumstances, using ridiculous people like we are to plant His churches. Let me Read these words from the Apostle Paul. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have not only given us the glorious gospel, the good news of Christ, but you have instructed us on how to identify with sinners such as we are. And just as you have touched our lips with that whole from off the altar with that healing from the cross of Christ touched our lips so that we cannot but speak and remember when we speak to others of what You have done for us. 
we do not go to other peoples with a know-it-all or a Lord, humble us that we can only speak of your grace to them. Guide us, O Lord, in the years to come that Christ may have the preeminence in all that we are in a genuine way in taking the gospel to others. May Jesus Christ have the preeminence in whose name we pray. Maybe our time's all gone because we went a little longer than we wanted to, but uh, I'll check with the foreman. A few more minutes for questions, or where are we? A few more minutes. A few. I am so thankful for David Vaughn. This is uh... <laughs> thank you for answering. Well, let me just uh, one of my another patron saint. Boy, this is getting almost Roman Catholic here, isn't it? This particular man is uh, a man that God raised up, brought to this country, um, 
And he saw the indigenous people of the Americas uh, within the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, uh, was a reformer within the church. He was quite evangelical, preaching the gospel. His name was San Bartolomé de las Casas. Uh, uh, went back and, and uh, argued for tremendous changes that took place in, in dealing, you know, they had that whole system of thinking of, of the indigenous people of the Americas where really, you know, you had the, the, the European and then you had uh, the animals and, and the animals, you know, didn't really have a soul like man and you had the, 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 uh, the European who had a body and a soul but the animals just had a body and then, or, uh, you know, here was uh, the... Uh, the indigenous people, they really didn't have a soul. They could treat them in a different way. And, and uh, almost, uh, uh, you know, all that took place of the horrors of all this was just beyond our, our comprehension. Of course, they... Uh, but San Bartolomé de las Casas, he had three principles that he formulated in how to take the gospel to the pagan people. There were three things he said that were very necessary in order to preach the gospel. Uh, to the intention of Christ and his command, one has to observe, he says, three certain conditions. I'm sure maybe our brother here could translate this better from this old Spaniard. But uh, he says, in the first place, the hearers above all, if they are infidels, they comprehend that the preachers of the faith don't have the intention of exercising dominion over them. Secondly, the second condition is that the hearers may not ever suspect that those that preach have any ambition for riches. And then third condition is that the preachers show themselves so humble, friendly, pacific, and warm-hearted that upon speaking with their hearers, listen with pleasure and reverence. We go and we're not there Somehow or another, if there's suspicion that we're, you know, what happened, for instance, in Mexico, they had to suspend all radio broadcast of any evangelicals, any radio broadcast, because the poor people were sending all their money up to the north. They could go into any bank and they had all the, the uh, wire things where they were sending all this money for healing, for all these things. And uh, that's why I remember Joel Naderhood article, tremendous article. Send no money to Martin Luther. See, the Reformation had to do with how the, how the, the church was just draining the poor people. And when we go to another people, we're preaching a, a gospel that's without charge because it's the free grace of God. But at the same time, we need to teach them that they have the responsibility for their congregation, their church, their social needs, their pastor, living of the gospel. And so I, I really think that's it's not just a financial issue. It has to do with the whole of the functioning of the church. I'm sure David's... Uh, circumstance and, and a practical working of that with the church in Grenoble and how that worked out is very informative for us. So maybe you could add a word there or, or uh, explain a little how that worked out. Um, well, this is one of the 
church has a lot of weaknesses and it's small, but in the, in the area of giving, I'd say there's 30, 30 people in the church now. I'm sure we there was 30. And, and there are uh, a number of them are
we worked hard to uh, not get into a situation where all of our money was going into religious trade, that God would help us to find other ways and, uh, and that we could, we could save, we could save money and prepare for the great season and we could buy something. Uh, we indicated our plans and, and the Lord was very grateful. But it was a huge problem in France. And the French people are known in Europe as being people that an English father really frustrated to him how little the French Christians give. Uh, and they know that in general it's people who don't give because they live in a socialistic, entitled sort of society. And uh, it's all the more wonderful to me to see how, this, uh, how these things can work by, by the grace of God. And uh, I do understand that we had some we had some big givers in our church, but but nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, the, 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 we can trust the Lord to uh, do these things for the work out of His grace. One of the things that uh, I guess I was reminded of listening to David just now was uh, uh, the church in Santiago with their burden to start other churches. They set aside right from the beginning after a certain point in time, that they would uh, put at least 10% of everything that comes in, they would put it towards missionary endeavors of starting other works and, and uh, spreading the gospel to the other indigenous people and, and with that burden. Of course, uh, all that happened after David Hendricks uh, brought his uh, message there. So I volunteer him if you need him in any of your churches. Uh, uh, CKX is ready with that message. It was very, very effective. Very effective. I, I remember uh, reading a, an article by Steve Sage. I don't believe it's not Nate Sage. Nate Sage is the brother who died. Steve Sage uh, was working among the... Uh, is it the Aka or the... The O'Donning. O'Donning. And, um, you know, he would come back to the States and people would talk about how poor they were could they help them? He said, he said I, I don't describe them as poor at all. I describe them as living in beachfront properties that's beneficial to them. And uh, so that sounds like politics. And he, you know, he says, they, they're, they're very content people. They're not aware of, you know, from a Western perspective of you know, how they live. And so he talks about bringing one of them back to the States. And <laughs> about, you know, they're always running around looking at these boxes. And, you know, you always seem to be discontent. And, you know, didn't understand the Thank you. 
conversations that are, are very, very dangerous intellectual pressure. I think it's constantly there's that there's that principle that the Lord Jesus came not to not to be served but to serve, mm-hmm. uh, to to be the servant of all. Um, you know, I, I think we need to protect. Uh, there can be unintended consequences <coughs> to you know to money, which is what makes these principles so important to work through. Really requires wisdom in the specifics of, of different settings to know how to apply them. One of the things that we have really tried to put into effect in relation to the national pastors is that the funds would that we would help with in a, seeing a church started would not go to the national pastor, but rather to that church so that they are from the beginning seeing that they have the responsibility for his salary. Um, so that here is funds and, and here's what they're working with and working with a budget and what they're working with. And then as that diminishes, they then have to fill that in as they would grow. And so it's the church. It's not suddenly he's saying, hey, well, I'm getting less. It's the church itself is here is what they have to work with. And uh, so that the church as a body is paying his salary all through this. Now, it hasn't always been, uh, that hasn't always happened that way. We've had struggles. Oh, I, I'm very thankful for brothers who go because sometimes I, I go through these things and I think, boy, am I missing something? You know, you, you go through a whole day trying to open a bank account. Just open a bank account. You know, you say to them, I got $10,000. I don't, but I have $10,000 here in my wallet, you know, and could I open an account with this? And they say, without a work record, and without this, and Social Security, this, 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 we're not going to laundry money here. You know, are you from Columbia? Uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, and, and you couldn't open a bank account. And I thought I could. <laughs> but I failed. You know, and so there's, there's all these things that are involved in working through these things. I think there's a number of things to be said there. On a practical level, I think we're back again to the who and what qualifications and what commitment and who they are. Uh, At the same time, Manuel uh, Carbonell, as a medical doctor and uh, with his background and everything was involved, I still put my forehead right next to his and said, if there's any way that you do not return to Argentina, I will find you. <laughs> and I will be mean. You're going back. And he had no question about that. But there was a real... Yes. On the other side of that, I believe getting their education in their own culture is really important to do that. One of the reasons why we saw this as helpful is because of the seminary, we wanted him to be able to have this level of education so that in coming back to Argentina and its culture, that he would have that credentials and, 
and the languages and these different things. And of course, counseling there, the, the, the secular counseling world has entered into the church and everything, and you really need some foundations to work with that. And, uh, but I do think it's much, you know, to be able to get the education in that culture, in that language, in that circumstance is much preferred than someone comes here and goes back there. And yes, uh, they end up staying here. And we have plenty of these neat guys, even, you know, there's more than one foreman among us, you know. But there's neat, wonderful people gifted here. But we need not rob from another culture and bring them here. That's a danger. Maybe just a quick word. I, I really think there are opportunities. Almost everyone, everywhere, there's different uh, from all these different nations. They're coming to us, and there's an outreach. And then they not only do minister to them, but they go back. They still continue those connections. We we had an amazing time for four and a half years. Every Sunday afternoon, um, when we were in in Arizona, we would have. 50 to 80 men who lived out in the orchards. And we would always have a meal first, down uh, about 30 minutes to the, our south, and, uh, and then we would preach the gospel. And then Christmas Eve, my family, we would just go down there as a family, and we would have socks and gloves, and we'd have a big fire and, and serve uh, hot chocolate and tamales and kind of a thing. Cause all these people are from Central America, uh, we never had any of them, uh, that is, 
They would all, some of them would come after the meal. But I always, my experience when I was about 16 years old, preaching for the first time in a, in a mission in downtown Phoenix, I remember standing up to preach and they're all waiting for the meal. And I felt like, you know, boy, they all want me to shut up pretty quick here, you know. And, uh, and so I always felt like, let's serve the meal first. And, you know, they're not hungry. But, and these, these fellows lived out in the orchards. I mean, just when it doesn't rain real often in Arizona, but when it rains, they're out there in the, under these orange trees. And, but uh, we, we, it was amazing, even from Guatemala, from Huihuitenango, and where Wycliffe was trying to have contact, there were five different tribal peoples that were represented among all these that were coming. And uh, we were contacted by Wycliffe because we had contacts with these people who were among these indigenous people. And it was just fascinating to see how they were coming to us. They knew where we were. They, you know, Hermano Jaime, you know, is, is in, está en este lugar and he, they'll be there on Sunday afternoon. It was like, and of course, today our, our uh, situation there in Arizona is so polarized. There are people who believe Mexico is our worst enemy. They're invading our country. They're going to take over. They hate Mexicans. I mean, it's, it's, you, you just, boy, you want to step back and be careful. Obviously, I don't agree with illegal immigration. Please don't. Uh, but these are real people that are suffering. And they are listening to the gospel they want to hear. Maybe I've said too much on the issue already, but it's a very important area of our outreach that's right before us. Just one other quick word. Part of our focus, too, in Latin America is, again, that I mentioned to you yesterday, is that they, they have a burden for taking the gospel to the unreached. Not only indigenous peoples of their own lands, but to, the, to India and to the Middle East. And they really can go to those places we are forbidden to go. So our purpose, in, in uh, if you'd pray for our training of these men, we really see that there's a future to taking the gospel to those unreached places through um, Latin Americans, yeah, those cultures.
I, I still remember the, the fellow I, I got to know one time at a Banner Truth conference and yeah, talking with him. And I, finally, I asked that, you know, almost question you shouldn't ask, you know, how big is your church? And uh, he said, it's under a thousand. And, and we talked another. And the next day I was talking again with him and, and he said something. Somebody else found out his church was about 75 people. He was, you know, he was under a thousand, you know. <laughs> Certainly, the scriptures do speak of numbers. I mean, we all know three thousand and five thousand. It's right in the very, you know. I don't know that it meant that it wasn't two thousand nine hundred ninety-nine, or, or, but it was you know three thousand, five thousand. There was a multiplication that was going on. And certainly, what is so easy for us to develop is that fortress mentality. We're the last ones standing for the faith in these dark days of apostasy. We're it. And we build up high walls and, and we're going to remain faithful. And that's not the spirit of the New Testament. It's a centrifugal force that's going out. And uh, how we expand, I mean, those three things that uh, we spoke of, how the church has that love one for another and, and that... that planting of other works and that all the church involved in that, that's, I think, something that's presupposition within the book of Acts. And it's not that uh, one, two, three, here's how we do it. I mean, we pray and, oh Lord, work in our churches, work in our lives and see how am I doing it? You know, Lord, I mean, we all, I mean, isn't that where I think there's probably some of you here that have got this figured out, but I don't think you're going to stand up and tell us that. I mean, we're all, how, Lord, can I show the rest of the congregation the Lord's work in, in doing this? That fortress mentality, though, I think is a very dangerous attitude that once we get set in that, it will, it's really practical hyper-Calvinism. I mean, we, we believe in the free offer of the gospel. Yes! But then we don't offer it. Is there any real... I know there's a difference theologically, but...
we we took advantage of uh, we took advantage of the director or the coordinator uh, was it last weekend or weekend before I can't remember what and one of the things I remember is the Old Testament has that come and see and we certainly have in the New Testament that we are to go and tell I don't know if exactly the way he put it but I thought it was uh, exactly you know it's come and see what wonderful things on the hill and here's God's greatness and grandeur but now we are to go forth maybe we can get it right here I do think, forgive me, just one, I guess that's kind of been, our church was in a process of reformation over the last 30 plus years, and and I remember some who came in, uh, they didn't have a clue. I mean, they didn't have a clue from way, way back, and and they had a animosity for the sovereignty of God. Bob Allen, I remember this man, he had lost his left arm in World War II, and, and uh Bob was just, oh, anytime I, I could just tell when I'd be preaching, he'd be, you know. And yet, about nine years along, nine years, we're in a Bible study one night, and uh, someone says something, and Bob goes, well, you're talking against the sovereignty of God. You can't say that. <laughs> and, and tears came down my face. I just sat there and said, wow, he's part of the body of Christ. I love Bob. I loved him before he believed and understood. I, I wasn't trading for anybody. He was part of that body that was alive. I mean, he cared for others. and uh, You have to know Bob. He was just an amazing guy. Uh, uh, 
for us to reject, I believe that's contrary, really, to what we confess. I mean, it's a body. Every part is important. How do we reject those that Christ has received? Now, that's different if they come to be divisive. And we say, hey, here's where we are. Are you going to come here and be divisive? That's very different. But, hey, I'm still learning. I hope everybody here is still learning. Do we need to vote on that? I want to. I want to say my, I'm Matt Foreman. I'm a recovering hypercalvinist. <laughs> 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 I, I relate to that. You know, I hear you talking about the 
Yes. And I, I've always felt a little, little self-pity in some ways that you know, just personally in my uh, growth and education, I don't feel like I have a full come and be with me time. So like I feel like when it comes to evangelism, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen it done well. And I, I look at some other churches out there and I'm like, yeah, I know they're doing stuff. I don't know how to do it, so I feel like i got to start from scratch. And I, I, Powell.
I was just going to say one of the things that we have done, and I'm not, not that we've done it very well. I'm not sure what we've done well, but uh, it may be as a try something. Uh, try stuff, excuse me, TS. Because I have a lot of connections with, with literature, books in Spanish, um, we have gotten with the different pastors that are already out there pastoring Hispanic churches. And we've given them books and established contact with them. So they don't feel threatened that we're starting another work kind of in competition. And we've been able to get them uh, somewhat, you know, here's this and this. And, and then and met with them to kind of talk about theology. And they're, they're wanting to talk about these things. They, they're very interested in good books. And uh, there's been that opening. And same thing we, we're going to do and we have done already. Uh, with the Chinese speaking uh, because we have a couple in our church that uh, are planning on going to China and so that the, getting the books together we got uh, the connection with the compeers to try to get some um, more uh, Chinese books uh, Pink's books and other books for this congregation um, I think there's things that we can do sometimes not by starting another work that we aren't maybe equipped completely but the existing places and works that are already going. For instance, I know, and I don't know where things are now, but uh, Jonathan Whiteside, I think, has pastored there in Hispanic Church uh, uh, in Toronto for I don't know how many years. Uh, and his congregation goes up and down from, I think it sometimes gets up to 200 plus or so, but it depends. They come and go. Uh, and he would be someone who would be, you know, 
uh, theologically, I'm sure not exactly where we are, but he would be uh, with the doctrines of grace. Um, anyway, I, I think there's sometimes just seeing who's around us and not being afraid to get in contact with them. And, and good literature, they will, so many of these different groups, they don't have very good literature. And one of the things that's happened, you know, when the, the, the missionaries were kicked out of uh, China, those, those were godly people, reformed. Some of them trained under Machen, and there was a, these men were, then they went to work uh, translating, getting printed books in Chinese. They were praying, the door's going to open someday. Who knows when? So when the door did open, they had translated Calvin's Institutes. They had translated these different books, and they were ready to put those books. You know, that's that longer-term, bigger vision that we need to have, I think, in, in missions. Oh, man.